Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash Watson Assistant. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, NBA agent Todd Ramisar cautions that we shouldn't bring sports back too soon. I think fans and people turn to sports in times of crisis, and, and in this crisis, to not have sports uh, is one thing, but to, to kind of be teased with sports returning and then to have it end again, that could be a, a significant blow, I think, to morale overall. Plus, golf writer Mark Canizero explains why hosting the Masters in November could be a positive for the sport. As long as we're on the the side of this virus and we're able to you know conduct sporting events it could be a magnificent event in november it'll be fascinating you know for it to be in a different time slot it'll be a little cooler scores maybe not be won't be as good because the winds will be up also historian jim knowles recalls the greatest season in army basketball history west point had never been in and that caused me to take a look back and i came across this great run they had West Point in 1944 was undefeated. And I thought, well, there must be a story there. Why would they have not gone and played in the NIT or the NCAA tournament then? This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking with Mark Canazero, the longtime golf writer, about his new book about the Masters which is being published even at a time in which, of course, we know the Masters has been postponed until November. But we start with a prominent NBA agent, Todd Ramazar, hoping to get an update on what's going on from an insider in the world of professional basketball. Todd, thank you for joining us. Jeremy, thanks for having me on. How's everything on your end? We're uh, we're doing okay here. It's... um. You know, we're, we're staying safe. I live in suburban Connecticut. I know you're in Southern California. Um, how are things with you? You know, every, everything is, uh, is good for the most part. I think just like uh, most of us uh, trying to make the most out of the circumstances. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, I think it was March 12th, whatever that Wednesday was, um, with, the, with that, that, you know, remarkable scene um, with Gobert in Oklahoma City and the season shutting down that night, as I recall, or maybe maybe it was the next day. It seems like a million years ago now. Um, sports has come to a standstill, as has so much else in the rhythms of our daily lives. How would you describe, and you represent um, some prominent players, including Pascal Siakam and Thomas Bryant, Kevon Looney, um, in the inside world of the NBA, how are people looking at things right now? Oh, well, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, Jeremy, because um, obviously I think for all of us that uh, have a responsibility or, or have our, our day jobs, you know, there's, there's that responsibility there where we're looking at this crisis, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, what our roles and responsibilities are there. And then there's also you know, uh, you know, our personal roles and responsibilities where I think exactly whether it be executives, players, or, or even agents like myself, we're, we're also concerned for our own health and safety as well as our families. So um, there's a, there's a number of things uh, that I think that are crossing our minds on a, on a daily basis as, uh, as this crisis continues to evolve. But it, it's, uh, I guess it's, it's all circumstantial. 
in terms of uh, what the what the the thoughts are. We're speaking with Todd Ramazar, the agent for several prominent NBA players, uh, and we heard Todd from Adam Silver uh, just in the last couple of days, basically saying we can't really have a plan now because there is simply too much uncertainty. We don't know what's happening. Um, with the virus, uh, we don't have a vaccine, obviously. So when people are asking him questions, uh, you know, when are we going to get back to play? He admits or he says there are no, no good answers right now. Um, but I'm sure there are contingency plans. So so how do you wrap your head around all of this uncertainty? I think it's, it's looking at, at both options, right? And, and with that uncertainty, uh, you know, going over those options with uh, clients and then even for me, just trying to better understand, uh, you know, what the issues are that the league and the union and and everyone else involved is, is facing. You know, when I say the two options, it's either the season is going to resume at some point uh, in the near future, and the near future could be, you know, six, eight weeks from now, um, or the season is going to be forced to uh, to be canceled because, to Adam's point, this crisis and the, and the information around it is so fluid and changing you know, you don't want to announce that the season is going to resume to then face a problem where it's going to have to end uh, before it even starts or begins. Because I think that would uh, not only be a blow to the league, but I think for fans, too, that could be a bit, uh, you know, uh, disheartening uh, based on the circumstances. Because I think fans and, and people turn to sports uh, in times of crisis and, and in this crisis to not have sports uh, is one thing, but to, to kind of be teased with sports returning and then to have it end again, uh, that could be, uh, that could be a, a significant blow, I think, to morale overall. We're speaking with Todd Ramazar, uh, an agent who represents several prominent NBA players, but you have a longer clientele list as well. Uh, how many guys do you represent who were playing overseas before sports got shut down? Uh, approximately 35. In how many countries? Uh, off the top of my head, um, I would say at least at least 10 countries. Wow. You know, all countries throughout throughout Europe and Asia. How did you help them manage this? Uh, when when you know not only you're trying to be safe, leagues you know had had different strategies about when they should shut down, but then the complications of getting back home to the U.S. if they were getting back home that that must have been challenging. Yeah, you know what I do, Jeremy, in, in, in times of crisis or, or, or even times that aren't and, and solutions need to be found is like I really try to put myself in my client's shoes. And by doing that, I can look at their set of circumstances. In, in, in this case, in this crisis, you know, look at the country they're in, look at how that country or that team, um, what type of medical resources they may have. You know, understanding my client and and any in in talking to them, understanding their concerns that they may have for their family back here in the states, or even understanding what state that they may be be living in uh, here in the U.S. and just try to understand understand the full scope. Uh, you know, to avoid anything uh, that could potentially be. Um, you know, more harmful for them, uh, you know, back then, and, which would have been in the coming weeks. So in, in a lot of the cases, Jeremy, I just uh, went to the teams, 
and ended up bringing a lot of my clients home because, you know, uh, looking at China where the, the, the outbreak first began and then looking at how uh, Europe was escalating uh, at the time, it was, uh, it was a fairly easy decision to make knowing that it was a, just a matter of time before it would hit the U.S. and escalate here as well as other parts of the world. Pascal Siakam, one of your most prominent clients, most improved player in the league last year, could have been the most improved player in the league this year. And certainly the Raptors' hopes of repeating as champion uh, resting uh, on his shoulders to some some degree. He's from Cameroon. He plays in Canada. Um what are his concerns right now beyond uh, beyond the concerns that we all have? You know, I, that's a great question, Jeremy. I don't know if there if there is any concerns beyond I think what the rest of us may be feeling. Um, he's healthy. He's feeling good. Is you know his his family is is healthy and safe right now, and I know he cares about his teammates. Everyone is good there and team personnel. So I think he's just anxiously awaiting you know, uh, to, to see the light, I guess you could say at the end of the tunnel in terms of what's next, right? What's next in terms of this season resuming, or is he turning his sights, you know, to, um, to next season, whenever that may begin. And then overall, just being sensitive to, you know, what's going on in society, you know, how that, that impacts him directly, but also how he could be a voice, you know, for, you know, to give, uh, you know, uh, some people in society some hope because as I mentioned earlier, you know, oftentimes uh, I think we turn to sports um, or some level of celebrity for just, uh, you know, uh, some thoughtful words or, or even some guidance and, and Pascal is heavily involved in the community. Those are things that he's uh, looking at in terms of whether it be PSAs or, or uh, even though he can't be hands-on there in the community uh, speaking to some initiatives uh, that may need some attention and some light drawn to it uh, based on this COVID-19 and how it's impacting society at all different levels and in, and in different ways. Before we let you go, what are people saying about the possibility of, and baseball kind of floated this idea to some extent, of playing games without fans? Yeah, I mean, this is purely my opinion, Jeremy. I think as it relates to no fans, if the NBA is looking to resume the season this year, I don't think we really have a choice uh, because uh, obviously we, we talk about social distancing. The more fans that you have in a confined space, and we know how arenas or stadiums are set up, it's it's well within that six uh, feet of uh, distancing. So, it, you know, just for the safety of the fans as well as the safety of the players and team personnel, everyone involved, um, I think it's it's without question that it, the games can't be played uh, without any fans present, at least initially, until they have a certain protocol in place or this virus uh, subsides quite a bit where everyone's confident to return back to arenas. But in the near future, in my opinion, in near future being in the next few months, I don't see that happening. Well, Todd, thank you for joining us. Uh, really appreciate your insights. Please stay safe, and we'd love to have you back here on the show in the future. Uh, thanks for having me, Jeremy, and you do the same. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. 
This would have been the week of the Masters. This would have been the week when all eyes would have been on Tiger Woods, trying to defend the title he miraculously won in 2019 after a decade of not winning majors, winning his 15th at the 2019 Masters. But of course, there is no Masters now. It has been scheduled for November. We welcome to the show somebody who's been covering the Masters for many, many decades. His new book is Seven Days in Augusta. Behind the scenes at the Masters, Mark Canizero. Always a pleasure, sir, to have you on the show. Jeremy, it's good to be with you. How you doing? Hey, hanging in. Uh, you know, uh, managing, and, and I hope you're doing the same. Of course, you were planning um, to be in Georgia this week. Instead, you're you're at home in New Jersey. Um, you know, what was your reaction when you heard first that the Masters was being postponed, and then that it was being rescheduled for November? Well, I tell you, everything happened so fast, Jeremy. I was down at the Players' Championship in Jacksonville when, uh, you know, when they suddenly canceled the event after the first round. And, you know, the next thing I know, I'm taking, a, you know, the first flight back to New York. And and it just seems like it's been whirlwind since then. And, and this, you know, this entire crisis is, you know, is elevated by the minute, it seems like. So everything has changed in all of our worlds, and obviously the sports world and the golf world, you know, just came to a halt. And, uh the Masters was the first, really, essentially, as soon as the PGA Tour, um, you know, suspended its, its, you know, right around the time the PGA Tour suspended its play, uh, the Masters was the first of the four majors to say, you know, we're going to we're going to take a pause and suspend, and you know, their their words were postponement, which at that time was, you know, felt uh, I don't want to say reassuring, but at least there was a sliver of positivity to it in that they weren't canceling it. Uh, so at that point, we just kind of waited to see how where the chips were going to fall. And uh, with Augusta, you, you really can't play during the summertime because it's just it's you know the, the heat is too oppressive in, in Augusta, Georgia, and you know essentially the club closes down from uh, from the end of end of May until the mid October. So the, the speculation immediately ran to having a Masters sometime late fall. Uh, so the only time it really made sense really was, you know, late October, early November. So, you know, obviously on, on Monday of this week, it you know, they announced that it would be, you know, the week of November 9th. And, uh, you know, I think as long as we're on the other side of this, you know, this virus and we're able to, you know, conduct sporting events, it could be a magnificent event in November. It'll be fascinating, you know, for it to be in a different time slot. It'll be a little cooler. Uh, the scores maybe not be won't be as good because the winds will be up. But uh, you know, I think it's going to be fascinating to see it unfold. You know, if indeed it does, I think with all of the, the governing bodies of golf yesterday on Monday, you know, everybody kind of reset the schedule, and I think every one of them did it with fingers crossed. The Open Championship canceled, but the PGA, the U.S. Open, the Masters rescheduled for later in the year. We're speaking with Mark Canizero, the eminent golf writer whose new book is Seven Days in Augusta, behind the scenes at the Masters. A terrific book. And Mark, before we get to the specifics of the book, um, you know, how do you think golf is positioned um, to uh, to weather the coronavirus crisis? It's obviously a sport in which Social distancing, from the perspective of the athletes themselves, can be practiced fairly easily. Well, what what happens to golf now, Jeremy? I think of all of the professional sports, I think golf has the the best chance to to carry on because of that. It's not a contact sport. Um, you know, the players and, and the caddies and the you know the officials can all you know be a, 
a, a proper distance apart. I think what, what's interesting here with golf is I think golf is the one sport that I can see having becoming a television only event with no with no spectators uh easiest um and you know obviously nobody wants to see that but i think we're all so starved for sports right now we'll take anything i mean at this point you know people are betting on video nba games right so you know we all want live sports in some manner and um, table tennis in russia yeah, yeah so i think what's happened with golf now and they have not announced anything there's a lot of speculation you know the, the pga tour came out on monday and said that they were you know, they essentially were hoping to continue their schedule starting sometime in June. And that, to me, sounds really soon. Uh, I mean, I don't want to be a pessimist, but I can't imagine that we are going to be at a point in any of our major sports, Jeremy, where where fans are going to be in arenas and on golf courses as soon as June. It just, that would just shock me. I mean, these dates we're hearing are really, they're really just moving Moving targets. I mean, none none of it can possibly be set in stone now. No, no nothing's set in stone, and this thing's fluid every day. But uh, but I think with regard to your question about the golf, I think the golf can take place as a television event without spectators much easier, much more manageably, I should say, probably than any other sport because it's not a contact sport. Um, you know. If you're watching television, you know, you're unless you're watching the Masters, and even then, you can't really hear the roars. You know, if you're at Augusta, the roars are, you know, as you know from being down there, you know, the roars are much the fabric of the entire tournament there. But on television, you know, it's not like watching an NCAA tournament basketball game or something like that, or the, or an NFL game, where the, you know you could feel the vibe of the fans, you know, through the television set. Golf is not necessarily like that. Golf is a kind of a quiet watch, if you will. So. Um, I think that golf can absolutely survive without fans, you know, in, 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 you know, on its courses. And I think that's in that way, I think it probably is going to get going, you know, maybe in June and it will take place without spectators for how long that takes place. I don't know. It's interesting, Jeremy. I, you know, I was, I was listening to Andy North, you know, our good friend and colleague and uh, on, on, on Scott Van Pelt's uh, show last night and he said he, his his sentiment was that a golf tournament should not take place if there can't be fans there, if you can't just conduct it normally. And I love Andy to death, but I completely disagree with him. I think we are so starved for sports, live sports. I think any golf fan would sign up right this second to watch golf with no spectators on the golf course. And uh, if that's the way it has to be for however long it has to be, you know, we'll all sign up for it. We're speaking with Mark Canizero, who writes about golf and other things for the New York Post and has done so for decades. His new book is Seven Days in Augusta, Seven Days in Augusta Behind the Scenes at the Masters. Uh, and Mark, um, what about golf other in other parts of the world? Um, it, you know, we, we've seen, you know, the, there are other parts of the world where the shutdown on the sports landscape, uh, was delayed longer than it was here. There are other places, presumably, where it will be up and running sooner. Um, what do we know about how the other tours around the world feel about, uh, resuming play at this point? Well, you know, for starters, obviously, as, as we referenced, the British Open, uh, canceled. Um, on Monday. Um, so, you know, that's a worldwide international event. Uh, although at this point, you know, the, the, the entire PJ tour is, is a world tour to, to a large degree, but, um, you know, 
it's it's different everywhere. Even in the metropolitan area here where we both live, Jeremy, it's different. I mean, there are uh, many golf courses that are open. I'm not, I'm not talking about you know professional golf, but golf courses. People are playing golf in Westchester County, and you know the New York State public cor- cor- uh, courses are open. Uh, the New York, New York State Park courses. Beth Page is open. Are they really? I, I I don't think I knew that. Yet I'm in New Jersey, and there's not a single course open in New Jersey. Oh, so they're all they're all closed in Jersey, but many of them are open in New York. Yeah, it's just so you know, and there, from what I'm hearing, there are some open in Connecticut, but but. So it really is a very, uh, it varies everywhere. And, uh, um, you know, I, I, I don't know what's going on all around the world, uh, but I do know that, you know, most, most anything that has to do with any professional golf is in a pause right now until further notice. I do want to talk about your book as well, though. We had a conversation about your book a number of weeks ago that we were planning to air this week to coincide with the Masters. Of course, uh, we scrapped that because... The whole world has changed in the time since we last spoke. Um, but when you think about what makes the Masters um, special, what are the first things that come to mind? Well, the first things really, and the, and the things that I'm missing desperately right now as we as we sit here and speak, uh, I would have flown down there by Sunday night and begun writing on Monday, and I'd be in full-fledged you know, uh, column writing mode down there right now. And, and to me, the most special thing about it is the tradition that takes place down there there's and you know i talked about it a lot in the book there's there's it's the one major championship that's played in the same place every year jeremy as you know and and you know there's just certain things that take place in fact i construct book that way to some degree the seven days were basically began yesterday monday and go right through sunday which is the final round and you know tonight for example the tuesday night as we're speaking uh, is is the is the annual champions dinner where you know all the past champions get together and the and the previous year's champion hosts the dinner and 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 decides on the menu and whatnot. Uh, you know, Wednesday is the par three tournament, uh, par three contest, which is just a special kind of sidelight that creates a lot of memories there. Uh, you know, Thursday morning, leading into the the opening round is the the ceremonial first tee shot, and they also, you know, several of the old timers come out and 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 kind of get the, you know, kick the tournament off, so to speak. When I first started covering the tournament, it was Sam Snead and Byron Nelson and, and Gene Sarazen. <laughs> you know, then that, you know, those gentlemen passed away, and then it became Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer and Gary Player. Uh, obviously, you know, Arnie has passed away, and now it's Jack and Gary. That's just a, those are special moments to me, uh, you know, and. Uh, you know, the one thing about the Masters, and, and I think it was, it, to me, it was the genesis of this book, and Jeremy, because you, you know that none of us can get onto Augusta and play the golf course, because it's one of the most exclusive places on the planet. And, and uh, the other thing is, the golf tournament itself, it's the hardest ticket in sports to acquire. So most people, most sports fans and golf fans, for them, the Masters is almost kind of this mythical, mystical event that's a television event. So I tried to blend things in that I've seen in the 25 Masters I've covered on the golf course that we've all watched and seen on live, you know, Tiger Woods winning in 97 and changing the landscape of the game and Phil Mickelson winning in 04 as first major after 40-something, you know, majors failing. You know, Norman collapsing in 96, you know, right on down the line, right up to last year's, you know, Tiger winning his fifth, his, his, his fifth green jacket so i try to blend some of that stuff into some of the stuff that goes on around the tournament that you don't see on tv what's inside the butler cap you know 
what goes on under this big oak tree, you know, uh, outside the clubhouse where movers and shakers schmooze all week. What goes on in the town? John Daly, you know, signing women's boobs and butts, you know, at the and outside of the Hooters down at his, you know, his RV. You know, so things like that, I just try to bring people into it because they don't really see that watching it on television. I'm speaking with Mark Canizero. His new book is Seven Days in Augusta, Behind the Scenes at the Masters. And as we spoke about last time, in an interview that will probably now never see the light of day, but will be archived <laughs> in the uh, National um, Broadcasting Museum, I'm sure, uh, we talked about, you know, the fact that it is um, unique among golf majors. You know, and this is obvious. It's the only one where it's in the same place every year. The way that the tennis majors are in the same place every year. And so Wimbledon has that aura and Roland Garros has that aura. Um, there are other places that regularly play host to the other majors, the U.S. Open, the PGA, the, the British Open. But, but it's the only one where they're there every year. That makes a big difference too. It makes a massive difference. That was the, one of the first observations Phil Nicholson made when I spoke to him, and he actually wrote the forward to the book, which was pretty cool. And uh, you know, when I was trying to kind of talk to Phil about what makes what sets the Masters apart, it was exactly what you just said. He's, you know, he talked about the fact that history is made at that very golf course every year for the last, you know, you know, x amount of years, and. You know, you mentioned Wimbledon, for example. I'm, I'm a massive tennis guy myself. You know, you mentioned Wimbledon and Roland Garros and U.S. Open. And I used to go to the U.S. Open when it was back in Forest Hills days. Um, West Side. The difference is, with Augusta, you've got historic moments that have taken place in different years on different golf holes on that golf course that people remember, whether it's that incredible, you know, chip-in that Tiger made, you know, on 16, you know, with, with the Vern Lundquist call. Um, you know, you, you, you name it, you know, the, the putt that, that Nicholas made in 86, you know, to seize the moment uh, on 16. Um, so there's historic moments that have happened all around those grounds on different parts of it that have become lore, you know, of, you know that, of, for that tournament. And uh, every year there's something new, you know, a new piece of history that's made. And, uh, you know, that to me is what sets it apart, and that was the first observation that Phil made as to what sets it apart. Because it's just it's it's at the same place every year, and history is made at that place every single year. And we all refer back to it, you know, when something takes place on a whole. We, are, we you know we say, oh, well, you know, that's where so and so did such and such. You know, years from now, we'll talk about twelve at Augusta at Amen Corner, which is where Tiger seized the moment last year. You know, when when Molinari put the ball in the water, you know, so did so did Tony Finau and uh, and Kepka as well, and those guys all, you know, ruined their chances of winning the green jacket. And Tiger seized that moment and charged ahead and ended up winning his fifth. You know, and for years we'll be talking about that. So there's always something. You know, Fred Couples' ball in '92 sitting up on the bank there at you know at, at Rays Creek, you know, getting an amazing lucky break. So there's so many things there that we refer back to. And that's what sets it apart. Speaking with Mark Canizero. And Mark, before I let you go, it's always fun talking with you. Uh, who's your favorite? We know the great, you've mentioned many of the great ones, the couples and the Faldos and the Tigers and, and, and Jack and so on. Who's your favorite obscure winner of the Masters? I would say probably my favorite obscure winner. And this is coming from the ones that I've covered. Okay. Um, when Charles, when Charles Schwartzel won, 
um, the South African, the South African, um, it, that tournament, people don't really remember what he did. That guy, I, he, I, he birdied out from, from 15 in to win that golf tournament and, uh, enough to buy some vowels, which were missing from his name. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, and it's not Charles, it's Charles. Okay. Right. Um, right. but I mean, I would say that probably would be, you know, one, but I think if there's, if there's one of all time and I didn't cover it and, and it's hard to call him obscure because he was, he's an Augusta native, but really the greatest obscure winner of all time at Augusta is Larry Mize in 87, you know, and that's essentially, unfor- you know, I don't say unfortunately, but I don't mean it in a bad way, but that's all Larry's really known for is winning the Masters and chipping in to beat Greg Norman in a playoff on the 11th hole. And, I mean, he came from nowhere, you know, and uh, um, I've got a great anecdote in the book, actually, from a friend of Larry's who grew up with Larry, who owns T-Bones, the, the iconic steakhouse that's right down the street from Augusta National. Um, and it's it's uh, the unofficial 19th hole at Augusta because all the caddies and the fans and everybody jam in there Masters Week. And Mark, who's the owner there, he grew up with uh, with 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 Mize, and he and he used to him and his buddies would laugh at Mize and say, you know, all that guy wants to do is hit balls at the range. He doesn't want to chase girls and drink beer. He's just out banging balls at the practice range all day. <laughs> what does he think he's going to do? Win the Masters one day? And that's literally what he said when they were in high school. And you know, heaven, you know, heaven. There was, you know, there he was winning, you know, an Augusta native winning, winning the Masters in eighteen nineteen eighty seven. So, I think that's probably, even though I didn't cover it, I wish I did. Um, that's you know, without question, has to be the greatest. And he's one of the classiest, sweetest men on the planet. Mize is so. Uh, I would probably put that above all for that. The answer to your question on that. Well, we hope uh, this conversation for our listeners has. Um has whetted their appetites or, or maybe just satiated them because they're not getting the Masters they were hoping for this week. Uh, so many great stories from Mark Canizero in his new book, Seven Days in Augusta, Behind the Scenes at the Masters. Uh, Mark, let's, let's all hope that we are doing this in November and having another conversation about Augusta. Jeremy, thanks for having me, and I absolutely hope we do talk in November, if not before, and, uh, and stay safe. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. A lot of people are familiar with the story of the great Army football teams of the mid-1940s. The teams in particular of 1944, 1945, and 1946. Coached by Red Blake and led by the back-to-back Heisman Trophy winners, Mr. Inside Doc Blanchard and Mr. Outside Glenn Davis. Those were some of the greatest college football teams ever and some of the most celebrated college football teams ever. A lesser known story is the 1944 Army basketball team, which was undefeated and is the subject of a new book by Jim Knowles, a historian slash attorney and a West Point graduate himself from the class of 1990. The book is Undefeated, West Point's Perfect Season 1944 from Basketball to Battle. And it is a pleasure to welcome to the show Jim Knowles. Jim, thank you for being with us. Oh, Jeremy, thanks for having me. Glad to be on the show. Jim, you graduated from West Point, as I said, 46 years after this 1944 basketball season. You've written about sports. You've written about military history as well. 
What led you to this subject exactly? Well, I've got to admit, I was filling out my office bracket, March Madness, not too long ago. And it just caused me to think, gee, I wonder if West Point ever made it to the tournament. And I found out with a little bit of Googling around that West Point had never been to the NCAA tournament. In fact, if, if I believe they are one of the four original Division I teams that have never made it to the tournament. I believe that includes St. Francis, perhaps, and then Citadel and William & Mary. Um, there's a little caveat to that that maybe we can talk about later. But anyways, they'd never made it. And you know, so that was sort of a an unhappy distinction. Not even when Kevin Houston was playing, and he was one of my favorites. He was he was around your time. That's right. He was there when I was there, and he led the nation in scoring. Yeah, yeah, a great guy, and boy, a fun player to watch. But that's right. Even not with him. And so I thought I saw well, we'd never made it. Now they'd been to the NIT a couple of times, but had never actually played in the, in, the, in the tournament. Not even Bob Knight got them to the NCAA tournament, you're saying? Well, that's the thing. I understand that they were invited one year under Knight's tenure, but he thought they had a better chance in the NIT, so he turned down the NCAA, went to the NIT, and, the, and, and West Point lost in the first round. <laughs> These things happen. But um, anyways, West Point had never been in, and that caused me to take a look back at, at some of the, the records just to see, well, you know, did they ever come close? And I came across this great run they had in 1944 and 1945 when West Point in 1944 was undefeated. And I thought, well, sure, there must be a story there. Why would they have not gone and played in the NIT or the NCAA tournament then? And that was sort of the genesis. That, that question and then a little digging around was the genesis for the book. What made this team special? What 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 was the key to its success in that um, that remarkable year, nineteen forty three, nineteen forty four? They're playing basketball as Dwight Eisenhower is in London planning the invasion of Northwest Europe. Um, so much is going on, obviously, with the world at war. What what made this team special? To me, it was special because this team had been five and ten the previous year, so. They've they've gone from really struggling, and there were lots of good reasons for the team to be struggling back in the the really 1943 season. But what happened was that um, down at Fordham, a coach named Ed Kelleher found himself without a basketball team when Fordham shut down its basketball program for the duration of the war. And Ed Kelleher was recognized as just, I mean, he's, he's sort of a forgotten character these days, but he was recognized back then as just one of the deans of, of of college basketball. In fact, he was the president of the College Basketball Association, College Basketball Coaches Association. I'm probably messing up the title precisely, but he was the, the president of the association um, back then for, for two years. So he was a really well-respected guy, he had, had coached at Fordham for something like 20 years and all of a sudden, he found himself without a job in the, uh, the summer of, uh, of 1943, and West Point scarfed him up. So they brought up Kelleher to West Point to be the coach, and Kelleher just institutes a, a very tough, fast-paced, fast-break um, offense coupled with just stifling defense – 
And that's a huge factor in it. The other part of it is I think he just had West Point had some great athletes as starters on that team. Um, the three fellows that I profile who were seniors and then two um, underclassmen um, who actually played who were football players as well, um, Doug Kenna and Dale Hall. So a, com- a happy combination of a great coach and some great athlete, athletes all coming together. We're speaking with Jim Knowles. He is the author of a new book, Undefeated, West Point's Perfect Season, 1944, From Basketball to Battle. And you mentioned uh, the focus on a few of these players uh, who were playing for Kelleher, 1943-1944, when there were at that point, what, about 10 million American men in uniform, uh, women too, but at one point, by the end of the war, 12 million Americans, uh, in uniform fighting World War II, uh, and, and these guys, the seniors know what awaits them, uh, when they graduate. How did that play out during the course of the season as, as they've got basketball to think about and they know, um, they know that as soon as they graduate and they're commissioned as second lieutenants, they're going right into the war. One thing is you've got to go back and, and remember that these guys were plebes. They were freshmen at West Point, entered in the summer of 1941. So they were plebes when the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor. Because they skipped one year. They were put on an accelerated graduation program. That's right. Yeah, yeah. They were. These guys were originally the class of 1945. So I think a big I think that's something to keep in mind here. One, they experienced hearing about Pearl Harbor while plebes at West Point. And I mean, some of their, not, none of the fellows that I talked about, but, you know, many of these people had, uh, many of these cadets had parents, dads who were in the military, some in the Philippines, some at, some at, uh, at uh, Schofield Barracks in, in Hawaii. Um, so it was very real to them, particularly given what they had signed up for. That was obviously part of the deal. Now they had gone from being a cadet in peacetime to a cadet in wartime. That was an aspect of it that I think follows through. Like you mentioned, their class was accelerated to graduate a year early. And I think even as they were going through that final season in uh, 1940, in, in the early 1944, you know, they had former teammates from, from their, their team that were already overseas fighting in the war. So I think it was very, very real to them. Um, well, I think, well, I'll add this. One of the, the neat things about uh, that, I, that I came across while researching the, the book was that the, the commandant at West Point, the second in command, the one responsible for military training and discipline, had to make an announcement to the, uh, to the cadets uh, the day after Pearl Harbor that you know, they all needed to knock off this conversa- these conversations about resigning and enlisting to go into the fight. I mean, so I think these guys were ready to go and wanted to go. And, uh, and uh, you know, that, that time was coming sooner than any of them perhaps anticipated. And this is John Eisenhower's class, too, the son of Dwight David Eisenhower. Yes, I was, yeah, yeah, I was hoping you'd, you'd, you'd mention that. That's right. One of their classmates is John Eisenhower, who's dead. And graduation day happened to be June 6th, 1944, correct? Bless your heart, Jeremy. You have read the book. Good for you, <laughs> sir. Good for you. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh <laughs> thought that was one of the neat things about the, the book. Uh, another little thing that came up was just how um, these, these cadets 
are grad. They, they got a classmate, John Eisenhower. Another classmate is marrying Omar Bradley's daughter. Um, they're all graduating on June sixth, nineteen forty four. So as they are forming up for their graduation parade, the news is breaking out all over the world that John, their classmate John Eisenhower's dad is uh, is uh, overseeing the Allied invasion of Normandy on D Day. But of course, that that skips up ahead through uh, the the season. By that point, the season's over. Well, it's a remarkable story, and and we we hardly have time here, unfortunately, Jim, to do it justice. But I encourage everyone to read it. It is a forgotten chapter of West Point history and basketball history. The nineteen forty four United States Military Academy basketball season. The book is undefeated. West Point's perfect season, nineteen forty four, from basketball. To battle, and there's so many, so many layers here, Jim. Um, again, appreciate your being with us, and appreciate your writing this book. Certainly, and Jeremy, I'll just jump in if I may, and say I've got to say I've been thinking about the book quite a bit recently because these seniors, after running the table and having that perfect season, did not get to go on and play in the NIT and the NCAA or the NCAA tournaments because the war was on, and the U.S. Army said. We're not going to take advantage of this situation. You guys got 100 days till graduation. Go home, get focused, and graduate. We're not going off the tournament. And I think I think that sort of resonates with what a lot of athletes are, are facing right now. No doubt. Thank you, Jim. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.